0: Luke chapter 5 tells us the story of Jesus healing a leper, and the story takes place in a small fishing town near the Sea of Galilee. This leper comes to Jesus begging. He's, he's poor. He's in need of help, and Jesus uh, not only has compassion on the leper, not only meets the leper's needs, uh, the story tells us that he actually reaches out and he touches the leper. It would have been a radical act. It was... To, to touch someone who's untouchable, um, it shows Jesus' compassion. And after Jesus heals the leper, he tells the leper not to tell anybody, but to go and to show himself to the priests. And, of course, the word spreads about what happens. And in Luke 5, verse 15, it tells us this. The story ends with, The news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. And then in verse 16 it says, But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. If you have your Bible or you're on your phone, you can either circle or highlight or underline the word often. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This is something he did. Uh, This was a a rhythm for him. To lonely places, to somewhere solitary. We find this in Jesus' life throughout the Gospels. And if If you kind of follow his story before something big or after something big or just in any ordinary day, Jesus is constantly retreating to the solitary place. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, it says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and he left the house and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. In Mark chapter 6, before the feeding of the 5,000, verse 31, it said, Jesus said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Matthew tells the story of after Jesus finds out that John the Baptist is beheaded. In Matthew 14, 13, it says Jesus heard what had happened and he withdrew to a boat privately to a solitary place. For Jesus' silence and solitude were essential disciplines. Silence and solitude, essential disciplines. We started a series last week called Life is Liturgy, something to take us through the summer. Liturgy means the practice of the people, the work of the people. As followers of Jesus, this is the way that we live. It's our rule of life. It's how we order the rhythms of our day. We have this journal that's hopefully helpful, that you would start the day with God's word, that you would end the day reflecting and being grateful, that God would have the first word of the day and the last word of the day uh, in, in your life, that you would be intentional about the rhythms of grace. And one of these rhythms is this idea of so- silence and solitude, this essential discipline of Jesus. It's almost something that is countercultural. Uh, for us today. And we talked about how uh, this, in Romans chapter 12, Paul tells us to not conform to the pattern of the world any longer, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To not just fall in step with the way that the world acts, but to fix our attention on God. Silence and solitude allows for that to happen. When you think about why this was so important for Jesus, why it was so essential, um, silence is actually quite healing. Something that I've forgotten being home, working from home with four kids. It's fun, it's loud, it's full of laughter and crying, um, but we don't get a lot of time with silence. Just from a psychological perspective, in 2011, the World Health Organization reported that noise pollution in our, our modern day has become like a modern plague. Uh, There's an overwhelming evidence that exposure to environmental noise has adverse effects on the health of a population, and so we can't escape noise, it's all around us. Um, Because it's become this modern plague that affects our brains, silence is partial remedy for this epidemic, and it's good for you, it's good for your brain, it relieves tension, it relieves stress, our cognitive functions are replenished and restored when we're in environments with lower levels of sensory input. In silence, even just the quiet stillness, you find uh, if you're going for a walk, if you're out in nature, it allows your brain to slow down and the sensory guards to turn off, so to speak. A Duke study from Duke University Medical Center in 2013 confirmed that silence regenerates blood cells, and extended and regular periods of silence can even help prevent and treat mental illness, from depression to dementia. Silence is proven to give you better focus and productivity, emotional intelligence, endurance, higher levels of compassion and empathy, and better listening. From just a psychological perspective, silence has all sorts of benefits for the way that we think. There's a story uh, in the Old Testament about the prophet Elijah. Elijah is in a, a, a... place with his country where the prophets of Baal and the Asherah have taken over. Uh, there's a king named Ahab who uh, is, is quite corrupt, and Elijah's calling them back to God. And in, in the midst of this story, they have the showdown. If you know the old story uh, with the prophets of Baal, Elijah uh, basically puts on um, great heroics. Fire comes down from heaven. It's just this wild story that you can find in 1 Kings chapter 19. But what's interesting is that after all of this happens, after all the chaos of this moment, uh, he runs. He's exhausted. He retreats. It says that he travels for 40 days and 40 nights, and he goes to Mount Horeb, the mountain of the Lord, and he's trying to process the chaos of what just happened. And as he's there, he's weary. He's burnt out. He's ready to give up. He's overwhelmed with sorrow for what's happening. And it says that God meets him on the mountain. It says that God comes and speaks to him. And it it tells us that as he's kind of waiting to hear from the Lord, this great wind comes. And the wind is so strong. It's like hurricane force. And it shatters the rocks upon the mountain of the Lord. But God's not in the wind. And then it tells us there's this great earthquake that comes. And it shakes the mountain. But God's not in the earthquake. And then there's this fire that comes. But God's not in the fire. And finally, it says, after all of the noise and after all of the chaos, God speaks. And it comes in the sound of a whisper, or a still, small voice. And Elijah hears from the Lord in the silence. If you see, the Hebrew word for whisper can actually be translated as silence. So some people say that there was an actual audible noise at all that came from God. But in the silence, Elijah hears from him. And God speaks to Elijah. He gives him direction. Here he restores his soul. Here he replenishes him. Went through a, a men's group that went through the book "Whisper" by Mark Batterson. How God speaks, and uh, Batterson brings up this interesting point about the silence and whispering. He says that whispering—it's—it's uh, it's one of the most intimate forms of communication because when someone whispers to you, you have to lean in. You have to get really close to them to hear. And it just so happens that God loves to speak through whispers. God speaks through whispers, which tells us that this goal of silence that we have and what we see in the life of Jesus, the goal of silence is intimacy with God. We live in this world where we need to slow down to be silent, to have intimacy with our God. Silence empties us from the noise of the world so we can hear something heavenly. In the midst of the chaos and all the noise that we hear, all the information that we're gathering, the silence allows us to just empty our minds to hear something heavenly. There's something healing about the silence of being with God. In the midst of our chaos of the world right now, with everything that's happening, whether it's the virus, whether it's uh, the, the, what feels like upheaval, the riots, with racism, all of the different issues that are, are big in our world today, I'm trying to figure out how to help, what to do as a pastor, what to even say. And I'm a, uh, you know, I, I grew up here in North Phoenix. I'm male, middle class, and white. I'm trying to understand these issues. Uh, this last week I had the opportunity to sit down and just have lunch with two of my friends, two of my black friends. One of them's a pastor that's been in my life for quite some time. He's older than me, he's been a mentor to me, and, I had the opportunity to just sit down and just listen to him and his experience, what he's going through in the midst of all of this. And we so easily, it's so easy to go to saying, I wanna have an opinion, I wanna comment. And I felt like I just needed to listen and I had breakfast with him over at Perk. We had breakfast burritos, it was great. <laughs> but just getting to, to listen to his story and say, what can I do to help? And one of the things I realized is that as he shared his experience with me, that I don't even know what I don't know. Like I had this awareness of like, I don't understand this and I wanna help, what can I do? And he said, one of the things you could just do is just sit and listen. Let's have an understanding. And I thought about this idea of how silence leads to empathy and compassion and understanding of the other. I had another lunch uh, this week with someone and it was kind of the same idea of, I don't know what I, I don't know, but I would have never known that unless I just sat down and listened in the midst of all the chaos, in the midst of everybody feeling like they need to to speak into the situation. Maybe relationally, we just need to sit down and listen to each other, to be silent, to be quiet, because it builds empathy, it raises our awareness. I think that with sitting in silence with our neighbors, with people different than us, is where healing starts, where understanding starts. And it's something our culture needs to do, to listen well, to be quiet. And if that's true of our relationships with each other, that's true of our relationships with God as well. We sit and listen in silence to what God has to say. We create intimacy when we listen in silence. And then there's solitude. Solitude, uh, something for me is hard to come by these days with all the kiddos at my house. And I always feel selfish when I'm telling Marcy I'm going for a run and then I'm gone for like an hour and a half while she's home with the kids, but solitude isn't just loneliness. Solitude is, uh, as Richard Foster says, loneliness is inner emptiness, but solitude is inner fulfillment. Inward solitude has outward manifestations, and the fruit of solitude is increased sensitivity and compassion to others. When we get away from the world, when we sit in solitude, God fills us up. We're not alone. There's not just a loneliness here. Um, There's intimacy, again, that's created. Henry Nouwen says this in The Way of the Heart. It's kind of a long quote, but he says this about solitude, that solitude is not just a private therapeutic place. Rather, it is a place of conversion, the place where the old self dies and the new self is born. In solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding, no friends to talk with, no telephone calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract, just me. Naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. And it's in this nothingness that I have to face my solitude, a nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, my work, my distractions. If he said this in the modern day, to go back to my phone, maybe, so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I am worth something. But that is not all. As soon as I decide to stay in my solitude, confusing ideas, disturbing images, wild fantasies, and weird associations jump about in my mind. Maybe you can relate. Anger and greed begin to show their ugly faces. I give long, hostile speeches to my enemies and dream lustful dreams in which I am wealthy, influential, and very attractive. Or poor and ugly and in need of immediate consolation. But thus I try again to run from the dark abyss of my nothingness and restore my false self in all its vain glory. But the wisdom of the desert of solitude is that the confrontation with our own frightening nothingness forces us to surrender ourselves totally and unconditionally to the Lord Jesus Christ. Solitude leads to intimacy and surrender to the presence of God. What I found is that in my life, there's a place that I feel is sacred, a place that I feel I could have this type of solitude where I connect with God, and it's on top of Camelback Mountain. It's my favorite mountain in the world. I would call it my mountain of the Lord. I feel like God shows up on that mountain more than anywhere else. And I get up on that mountain, and you're in the middle of the city, this massive city, the fifth largest metroplex in the country, but you're completely away from everyone else and you get this perspective up on top of Campbellback Mountain and I feel like it's on that mountain and I can I can connect with the presence of God in solitude or I can wrestle and sort through questions uh, that only I can answer or I can allow God to renew and restore my soul or I could be in silence oftentimes my phone doesn't get service up there and so like Camelback Mountain in the shower, the only times I'm away from my phone. But there's something about that solitude that is healing. There's something about it that feels holy. There's something about it that allows me to just surrender my agenda, surrender my anger, surrender all of the things that I'm worried about to God. There's something healing about the solitude. The goal of solitude is intimacy, to be in the presence of God, to experience His goodness. It forces us to surrender ourselves totally and unconditionally to God's presence. It strips us of the false self. But then it also allows us to be in community because we've been filled up with God's presence. And the fruit of God's spirit just flows out of us when we stop in silence and solitude. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places before or after big events, Elijah, after this chaotic thing that happened in his culture, retreats to the mountain of the Lord. Silence and solitude are something that are healing for us. They form us to be who God wants. But here's the thing. Silence and solitude don't just happen by default. They happen by design. We have to create place places in our life for silence and solitude. And here's some practical steps for silence and sol- solitude. First is this, to identify your sacred space and time. What is that for you? For me, it's Campbellback Mountain. For me, it's jogging on, uh, over at Reach 11. Maybe for you, it's going for a bike ride. Maybe it's swimming. Maybe it's hanging out on your back patio. Maybe it's golfing. Not sure what that is, but identifying, here's a space where I know that God shows up and I'm limited from my distractions. I can be silent, I can have solitude. And then begin with a modest goal. Maybe for you, you need to start with just saying, I need five minutes of silence today, where I turn my phone off, the push notifications aren't bothering me, I don't hear from anyone else in my family, I'm not watching the news, I just have five minutes of silence. Or maybe it's going without your phone for 30 minutes. Being at your house and just putting it away where you can't get to it. Spending 30 minutes in silence and solitude. Begin with a modest goal. And then settle into a comfortable yet alert physical position. I think the posture that we take in silence and solitude is so important. And there's sometimes where I'm so overwhelmed and I'm so worried. And I need to just sit in solitude with God. And one of the things that helps me is I just open up the Bible, but I don't read it. I just sit with the Bible open in my hands and my palms up and take a posture of, Lord, I just want to receive. I don't need to say anything. I don't need to do anything. I just need to receive. Maybe it's getting down on the floor on your face like the leper begging for God, begging for Jesus but to take a posture that feels comfortable. And then the fourth thing, a practical step, is to ask God to give you a simple prayer that expresses your openness and desire for him. I don't know if you memorize scripture, but these kind of prayers have a way of just centering our life on the presence of God. Maybe it's the Lord's Prayer. Maybe it's Psalm 23. Maybe it's just... uh, some prayers that in your mind, as as Brittany read earlier, you found that are just helpful to center our lives on the presence of God. But I want to end today with a prayer for us to move into just a time of silence and solitude, to hear the words of these prayers from Psalm 37 and to say, Lord, in the midst of the silence and solitude with all of the noise that's going on around me, I want intimacy with you. So if you take a moment, you can just close your eyes, breathe in, become aware of God's presence and hear these words. These are ancient prayers. Psalm 37 says this, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord. Be still and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways Will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. And think of the words of this prayer Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know. Be still. Be.